We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi everyone and welcome to a new special episode of Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I'm Sarah. And we have a very special, exciting guest with us today. We have the author, Emma Stonex. So hi, Emma. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. It's so exciting. Um, We we have prepared a little bio. Hopefully it's all correct. Let's test it out. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, jump in if anything's wrong. Um, So... (laughs) Emma Stainex grew up in Northamptonshire. Before becoming a writer, she worked as an editor at a major publishing house. She's written several books under a pseudonym, but The Lamplighters is her debut under her own name and has been translated into more than 20 languages. Her love affair with lighthouses and the coast began with childhood holidays to Cornwall and the Isle of Wight, which remain among her favourite places to visit. She now lives in Bristol with her husband and two young daughters and is an all-round lovely person. Oh, I like the last bit. (laughs) Frankie gets the credit she wrote this <laughs> just being honest just stating facts so yeah. is that correct it's all correct yes especially the even last a bit, bit about me being lovely yes I'll <laughs> yeah. definitely take that <laughs> so yeah thank you so much Emma we're really excited to talk to you about the lamplighters which I've got my copy here um and well can I just this is a, probably not the place to start and you shouldn't judge a book by its cover but how beautiful is your cover oh my goodness I know and I'm so glad that they've kept the same cover for the paperback as the hardback yes. they've zoomed in a little bit on the towel so it's a bit bigger but I just love the colours and the marbling and I think it's really striking so yeah I really beautiful and it, it ties in with a beautiful story and everything so it's perfect perfect artwork thank you I think it's clever artwork because it's because the book is not necessarily easy to put into genre it's sort of um, a love story and a ghost story, a little bit frightening, a little bit creepy. And I think the cover really conveys all of that, the romance as well as the horror of the story. Um, so, yes, very clever Picador art department. Yeah. <laughs> shall we go straight into some questions about the book or shall we? Yeah, of yeah. course. Ask me anything. I guess to tell people a little bit about the book um, as well, first of all. I think, like you said, Emma, it's a weird one in that there's not a very specific genre to plonk it down into. And I have to say, it's not the sort of book that I probably would have picked up off my own back because I'm very much a like trashy fast food of crime novels type reader. And then after we had Elizabeth on and interviewed her recently and she was raving about it. So Frankie and I both went off and read it straight away. And I absolutely loved it. And I think oh, that a lot of it is the the setting. I mean, who doesn't want to read all about lighthouses and this incredible wild setting? And yeah, I absolutely adored it. And also, funnily enough, on our last episode, which isn't out yet, I was raving about how much I love a locked book mystery as well. And obviously mm. there were elements of that in there too. And it's very hard to talk too much around it without giving away any spoilers, which I don't want to do because, you know, I don't want to ruin it for anyone. Um <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. Go read it, everyone. It was really beautiful um, and also a real page turner as well. Thank Um, you. Yeah, I love that you said that about the setting, because for me, having bringing back to life the occupation of lighthouse keeping and having bringing to life these amazing monuments that are now all empty. They're all automated now, the lighthouses in the UK. But in the 70s, when the book is set, um, three men lived on these towers for eight weeks at a time in such close quarters. And I think in a way, 
an abandoned lighthouse in the middle of the sea is the ultimate locked room mystery, isn't it? Definitely. Because the real event on which the Lamplighters is based is the disappearance of three keepers from a Scottish lighthouse in 1900. And that was a, an island lighthouse or a rock lighthouse where it is actually on some land that you can leave the lighthouse and have a walk about. But I thought, how am I going to make this even more extreme and compelling than even the original mystery? And for me, it was making it was moving the action to a sea tower because they have such atmosphere and they're so haunting and evocative and creepy. And they look so lonely out there on the sea as well. And they really spoke to me. So I'm glad that that sense of atmosphere came across for you as well. Oh, definitely. And um, this probably isn't what you were going for. But to be honest, I got to the end of it and I was like, I'd have loved to have been a lighthouse keeper. Yeah, do you know, I (laughs) would as well. I think I would, especially with two young children. The idea of being stuck on a lighthouse miles from anywhere is quite appealing. Yeah, Um, a couple of months at a time. (laughs) Yeah, and I think some of these keepers did really love the life. So Arthur, the principal keeper in the book, has devoted his whole life to the sea and to lighthouses. And for him, it's a calling. Whereas other keepers like Bill really has a lot more ambivalence around the job. And I think there was that mixed bag in the profession of people who loved it and people who ended up in it because it was a tradition in their family or they just found themselves in that job and actually they had no real affinity for the sea or for these these lighthouses and so I wanted to explore that a little bit in the book as well the different personalities that were drawn to the tower and then how they all fit together when they're living in such close quarters. So obviously it's based on a true story how did you stumble across this story? What was the origin of it for you? I read about this story in the Fortean Times, which I guess you guys know of. (laughs) Well, you should. It's a fortnightly magazine of like weird and wonderful things that happen across the globe. And the reason I say I think you should is because I think you'd love it. Sounds great. Um, So it's got like real life mysteries. It's got just bizarre things that happen. It's got ghostly stuff. It's got creepy stuff. It's just fascinating. And some of it's very tongue in cheek, but every so often you come across a real life like case study. And there was this case study and I read about it 10 years ago about these three keepers who had vanished from a lighthouse in the Flannan Isles in 1900. And to this day, 120 years later, nobody knows what happened to them. Straight away, I just had a shiver down my spine. The combination of the mystery itself, but also the setting, the lighthouse, the sea, the idea that nobody knows what happened to them, I find really, yeah, really chilling. And so I knew I wanted to try imagining it myself in a novel, but at the same time, I didn't want to attempt to retell it. I wanted to reimagine it. And I did that by moving the location and the time frame as well. And what was it about moving it to the 70s that appealed to you so much? A lot of the reading that I'd done around lighthouse keepers and lighthouse keeping was in the up between sort of 50s and 70s so I felt quite comfortable in that period much more comfortable than I would talking about an event in 1900 I'm not really I, I don't think of myself as a historical fiction writer and the idea of telling it in 1900 in Scottish vernacular would have just been embarrassing for me like I wouldn't <laughs> attempt that at all and also the 1970s were a really interesting period in lighthouse keeping because it was the decade preceding automation So it was really the sense um, for these lighthouse keepers of the job coming to an end. And they knew that in 10, 15, 20 years time, there would be a machine doing their job and how that might have felt for a keeper like Arthur 
who loves the lighthouses so much and, and what about the soul of lighthouses that's going to be lost by having having it done electrically so the 70s just felt like a really natural fit for me and I think it was important from the outset not to try and retell the original story out of sensitivity as well because these are real men who vanished presumably died and real families who've lived with uncertainty all this time so to have me kind of wading in and sticking my flag in the sand and saying this is what I think happened to them felt a little bit presumptuous and not quite right. I got a little bit of a shock. I, quite early on, there's um, a slightly throwaway line about how someone was reading the news and it mentioned the Queen and Philip being married for 25 years. And it gave me that moment of, in my mind, the 70s is sort of quite close to the modern day. Yeah. And then I was like, their 25th wedding anniversary, that was quite a long time ago, actually, oh, wasn't sorry. it? I know, I know. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? And I, I often think of, I mean, it shows how old I am, I suppose. I was born in the 80s, but I always think of the 70s as relatively recent history. Yeah. Um, and then people say, talk to me about writing historical fiction. And I think, historical fiction? Isn't that Victorian stuff? But I yeah, guess it's not now, because the 70s is 50 years ago now, so oh, it is God. history. Yeah, that's a terrifying thought uh, from two other 80s babies as well. Yes. <laughs> We're practically historical at this point. We are. For me, it's when young people refer to uh, 90s clothing as vintage, and I get very <laughs> upset. Vintage. vintage. I know. Unbelievable. I know. The disrespect. You see, like, you see all like the music and like the clothes and stuff coming yes. back now, and it's like, God, I saw that the first time. I'm really old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is bleak. Um, there's a line in the book that really jumped out to me and I wanted to just hear it's one that Jenny says when Dan Sharp the journalist starts in his investigation because he wants to find out what happened and he speaks to all the wives of the of the lighthouse keepers and she says I've heard authors are like that caught up with what's inside your head instead of what's outside it and I wondered if that is 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 that what appeals to you about writing would you say that's true of you or is that just for that character I'd say it is true of me but it's not necessarily appealing. I think <laughs> I think writers do spend a lot of time in their heads. They have to, you know, that's where it all comes together. And then the challenge is, is to then communicate all of that um, in, in a digestible and entertaining way for a reader. But it's strange being a writer because you do have to have that balance between introspective life and the ability to always be looking and listening and picking up bits and pieces from the real world and in in many ways I've had this conversation with other author friends in many ways writing is not a happy marriage with living your life it's it's quite strange because you do need to be alone a lot of the time to get the words down um you're inventing universes that have no purchase in the real useful physical world it's all in your imagination so you have days when you think what am I doing this for like why am I doing this and yeah ordinary life can often sort of encroach on 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 your imaginings which feels like the wrong way around but your sort of ordinary life sometimes becomes a bit of a nuisance like I don't want to take that phone call or I don't want to go and do the school run because I'm trying to focus on these imaginary characters in my head so it's a really weird yeah really weird tension between those two elements I think but yeah for me I've never I've never been able to or, or wanted to do anything else though so yeah this is um yeah, it's lovely to have something out, out under my real name, actually, for that reason, because I do feel like it's always been in me. Yeah, why did you initially publish under a pseudonym? I, I know lots of authors do it. What was the decision for you? 
Well, I used to write very different books to the lamp writers, mm-hmm. more like the fast paced things that you've been describing, but not mm-hmm. crime, bonk busters. Have you heard of bonk busters? No, I've been kind of Jackie Collins kind yeah. of vibes, right? <sighs> so Love I used that. to write those under a pseudonym, big beach read, doorstopper, celebrity, sexy, that sort of thing. So completely different to this. And I wrote those because I grew up on a diet of Jackie Collins and Jilly Cooper and I loved them. And I knew I wanted to write a book. And I had an I, I had this idea when I first met my literary agent years and years ago, about 12 years ago. And I said to her at that point, I've got this idea for a lighthouse book that I want to keep my real name for. But I've also been working up this thing for fun in my evenings. And what do you think? And she really liked what I'd done with Bonk Busters. So we decided to use a pseudonym for those. But the lighthouse was always there throughout the books that I've written in the past, just sort of shining in the back of my mind and was always really my heart and soul project that I was desperate to try one day. But I think when I first started out writing, I couldn't have written this book. I think the other books under pseudonyms have taught me so much about not only about book construction and plots and character arcs and all of that, but also about my own ability and my own confidence. And God knows that is shaken so much when you're writing books that actually with this one with the lamplighters gave me so much grief in the writing and the redrafting if I hadn't had the experience of my previous books I may well have said I just can't do it I haven't got it in me but I knew I had so it was great at exercising the muscle as well those those other books it's all been building towards this point I love it does it. feel like it and even though the lamplighters is is it's my 10th book yeah. it feels like my first yeah. In in so many ways, it feels like my first. And also because the publishing experience has been so different for me as well this time around, being myself, being able to talk about it, being able to talk with passion about it has felt completely different to anything I've done before. Forgive me, I've not read your bonk busters. I love that phrase. Um, but like <laughs> yeah. the writing is so beautiful in this. And there's one, I, I forgive me, just reading you passages from your book, which I know that you've already written and read <laughs> probably quite a few times. But there is this, that, there's this um, chapter, chapter 11 with Arthur when it opens up. And it is this most beautiful passage is the first paragraph. We say, a time I think of you the most is when the sun comes up, the moment before, the minute or two, when night yawns for morning and the sea starts to separate from the sky. Day after day, the sun comes back. I don't know why. I've had my light safe here, shining through the dark, and I'll keep it shining. The sun needn't bother today. But still he comes, and still come my thoughts of you. And it goes on like, it's so beautiful and heartbreaking. So I imagine that must have been a bit of a departure from the bonk buster sentiment. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And actually, that was an interesting challenge because the bonk busters were very, very much imitating styles that I'd grown up on. And there is definitely a formula to writing a book like that. You know, the multiple points of views and the different locations and things. And actually, I have got multiple points of view in here. So maybe there is a slight crossover. But with the Lamplighters, the challenge for me was to really write as me, which I hadn't ever done before. I'd always sort of copied somebody else, really, in terms of tone and style. But with the Lamplighters, it was it was me on the page. So it felt much more vulnerable. And um, and I think when it was published as well, it was a much more vulnerable feeling because if you're writing behind a pseudonym, you have some emotional distance from the text and a bad review let's say can sort of scratch the surface but when it's really you you do feel very much more invested and more prone to 
being hurt by what people say I suppose because you're exposed as yourself finally yeah yeah, Yeah, that has felt like a lovely coming out moment actually like this is me this is what (laughs) I want to do and yeah it's been it's been lovely and the way that it's been received um by people and how much love it's had has been just one of the best things that's ever happened to me you know you've done a phenomenal job with it and it's resonates with people for a reason so that's great. And I think is another thing as well, obviously the writing's beautiful, the setting's beautiful, but you've got some really great characters in there. So I wanted to say which, if you had to be one of the characters from your book, which one would it be and why? Definitely Arthur. And I think for yeah. the reasons that we've talked about before, because I, I can imagine myself an old man. <laughs> for many reasons, but no, I, can imagine, I can imagine myself sitting in, in the lantern, watching the light, in the olden days, back in the seventies, yeah. <laughs> those olden days, um, yeah, um, no phones, no no tellies, no distractions, no social media, just with the sea and how happy that makes me. The sea makes me really happy, and I think it's a wonderful shot of perspective. Whatever you're going through in your life, the coast has this wonderful feel. Particularly for me, the British coast. It's not as warm and balmy and beautiful as the Mediterranean, but there's a real character to it. That sort of grey, brininess, that faded glamour that you get in places like West and Supermare. And, you know, it has a real feeling and it's a feeling that I love. And that was the feeling that I wanted to get across in the book more than anything. I suppose that feeling of the British coast. And these keepers, when they would go off for their stay, would... um, take something like a journal or um, puzzles or they build a ship in a bottle something that these days I guess we call mindfulness to focus on a task like that and I think that these days with the speed and the hyperactivity of social media and all of the many directions our attention is drawn in we find it quite hard to focus on these small mindful tasks and I think that I would love to return to doing that I would love to try doing that and I've seen a couple of um where was it there was an island I think it was a Scandinavian island and they were advertising for somebody to go and live on a lighthouse for a month I think I like saw an, that yeah see that yeah as an experiment and I thought I would love to do that I mean I couldn't at the time because I had a baby but I thought I would absolutely love to do that and I don't think I'd feel lonely and I don't think I'd feel scared I say that now maybe I would but I <laughs> like my own company and the atmosphere I think would be incredible mm. Yeah, just switching off completely. I mean, there was that the line in the book about the lighthouse keeper who worked on these ships in the bottles and then they got the telly and he just that was it. He never worked on them again. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it's all it's that very visible moment of crossing over into modern times, I guess. And I guess so. And also I that. I think that they needed to have tasks like that to keep their minds um healthy and working because especially if you're on a sea tower, the rooms were I think uh, 12 feet across. So it, it's it's the length of two men lying down or two me's lying down, quite tall. Yeah. Um, and it would just be that. You can't get out of the lighthouse. There's no land around you. So you're just stuck in there. And I think even if you were living with your nearest and dearest, that would be a challenge. But to have two people, I don't know, maybe it's easier to live with two strangers than your nearest and dearest. I don't know. But you wouldn't necessarily have much in common with these people. You wouldn't necessarily get on with them. So I think they needed these tasks to focus their minds and keep them, yeah, keep them thinking about the right things. Yeah, something to be said for it, isn't there? <laughs> mm, yeah. 
so you talked a bit about your writing process but what do you enjoy the most and what do you enjoy least about the writing process the thing I enjoy the most is um getting the first draft down and I say this despite the fact that I have never done a very good first draft in my whole life it's always <laughs> terrible but nonetheless I I enjoy that sort of raw magic that you have in that process where you've been thinking about ideas and characters and trying to communicate those onto the page is something quite special and I ought to plan in far more detail than I do and I have friends who are way more efficient than I am and have these wonderful charts of things that are happening I can't do it that way I have to discover it as I go I have to tell myself a story and when I get to the end of the first draft I go oh, okay I've told myself now now I'll try and tell somebody else and that's the second draft so for the first draft for me is so fun because it is that process of discovery I want to know what happens I want to find out where this person ends up because I don't know before I begin which leaves a lot more work for me to do and it's complicated and probably not the best way of doing it but it's the only way I can do it <laughs> and I think my least favorite would probably then be having to go in back in and sort it all out so the second draft probably my least favorite after the second draft you feel like a little bit like you know what you're doing and then you can carry on making it better and better but it's that second one I think of going back in and thinking oh I thought that chapter was really good but actually reading it now it's complete crap <laughs> <laughs> that can be a bit sobering <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, obviously I don't work like you do, but even the some, I'll write something and I look back at it the next day. I'm like, was I, what was I, what happened to me? Did I hit my head? Like, why did I think this was good when I wrote it yesterday? And I then, know, but do you necessarily trust that? If you have that instinct, do you set it to one side and look at it again on another day and see if you like it? Because it does change, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I, I probably am very quick to just say, no, that I was probably being stupid and move on from there. But um, mm. that's probably better advice that you've given there to give it a bit more time. This is completely trivializing it, but I even think sometimes, you know, when you're browsing like on ASOS Mm, (laughs) and you pick a dress or something and you save it to your thing and then you come back to it and you're like, well, that's absolutely hideous. What was I thinking? Was I, (laughs) what kind of level of psychosis was I going through at the time of shopping? Because I'm never going to wear that. You know, I think it's the same thing though with anything creative. Like if you, it depends on your mood on the day, right? Yeah, it really does. And I think as well, there's something something to be said for, when you're getting down that writing initially not being too tempted to pick back over what you've done the day before or the week before Um, and a lot of writers say it but I think that's because it's completely true you've just got to keep chipping away keep getting towards that 90,000 word count or whatever it is that you've set yourself and not get too bogged down in what you've done previously otherwise it's like a tide it just pulls you back and you start getting filled with self-doubt and all these things that we cripple ourselves with as writers so keep going. I really like that your favourite bit is writing it for yourself. Then your least favourite is having to turn it into something for someone else. <laughs> I'm share this, mine. That sounds really yeah. selfish, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I was thinking, thank you for persevering. You could quite yeah. easily just keep it all in your head. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it, that's it. It's sort of, that's why the first draft is often a bit of a mad ramble, because it's something that you might only understand, and then you need to make it palatable for somebody else. But I feel like if I plan it too much in advance, when I sit down to write it, I am almost slightly bored because I feel like I know everything that happens in the book. So I feel less enthused about getting it down. And then that comes into my writing. I find the writing is staler if I know already what happens. But if I'm discovering it, there's a little element of something extra in there, maybe. Yeah. At what point do you start sharing the characters and what's happening with people around you? 
is it tempting to keep it all for yourself or do you want to start talking about these people and what's going on with say your husband or friends or I'm actually really private about what I'm writing until it's something that I don't feel mortally embarrassed by (laughs) which is normally draft three I would say again I think I would be much kinder to myself and it would probably be better if I did share it earlier on and I've got a lovely network of very supportive friends and I read their things in progress and they're always offering to read mine but for some reason I feel yeah I guess I feel embarrassed I feel like I can't show it yet or it's going to change or there's no point showing it because I'm going to sort all that out or whatever so um the book I'm writing at the moment the first people to see um the manuscript were my agent and editor and I still haven't shown it to anybody else I'm on the second draft now but maybe next draft maybe draft three I'll (laughs) see because I think as well I learned early on with my Victoria Fox books the bonk busters I made the mistake early on of showing loads of people the first few chapters because they were sort of funny and sexy. I wanted to share them. And I had such a huge variation of reactions that it really confused me. So like Mm. two people loved this character, two people hated him. And then it actually made me doubt my own judgment because I had too many people chipping in. So ever since then, I've thought if I show it, it'll just be to one or two really trusted people because it's so subjective. We'll all have different reactions to things. Um, And I think when a work is in progress, the author needs to keep really close to her own instinct about it above and beyond everything else. It's going back to what Sarah said about you writing for you and and making it the first draft, at least, is you. And it's all about, I would say, in order to get through a first draft process, which I imagine is a long and laborious process, you have to enjoy it and like what you're doing and have the belief in it. So that makes complete sense that you, at that point, you don't want to share it yet until you feel that you've got it to a place that you're 100% happy with it. So that, that makes sense to me, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not even a question of being 100% happy. It's just having something that is sort of what I intended there's always a gap between what you intend in your head before you actually sit down and write it and then what's on the page there's always going to be a gap there but it needs to be as close for me as it possibly can be before I would hand it over to anybody else because also I, I feel like I don't need other people to tell me what I know is wrong with it it's the point I need the help is when I can't see anymore what's wrong with it and then I need those trusted people to come in it must be a little bit odd in that it's like you've got this whole other world that you then check out of and no one really knows about it's like a secret hidden life for however you know many months it really is and you're exactly right you've hit the nail on the head that is what it's like and the longer I work at it and the more complex it gets and I hit a problem my husband will say oh let's talk about it and I just like it's too big like it's, I can't begin to explain it now it's too big you couldn't so help I, <laughs> so I think if you I think if you want to involve someone, you do have to involve them from quite early on um, so that they understand everything that's happening. Um, But it's exactly like that. You feel like you have this whole world in your mind that you're carrying around and you have to be able to step, step into it and step out of it sometimes quite, quite quickly. Oh, I've got an hour now to do something. I've got to turn the creative taps on, see if anything comes, comes out. And quite often it doesn't in a short space of time, um, which can also be frustrating. Um, but yeah it's it's a funny old job isn't it yeah not one I could do (laughs) you've got lots of respect from me (laughs) I imagine you probably read quite a bit as well Mm. especially as you said you share work with um, your friends and other writers in the community Uh, what the what's the last book that you read and really really loved I've actually just finished um, an old book that I found in a second-hand store from 1980 so back in the olden days again (laughs) vintage Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> antique. <laughs> um, P.D. James. Oh, oh, she is so good, isn't so she? So good. Yeah. Um, this one, I mean, I've got it right here, so I'll show you. It's got a terrible cover and a terrible <laughs> title that you would never have now because it's so, so unfashionable. It's called Innocent Blood. <laughs> Two quid it was in the second half. I said, oh, I'll try this. I like P.D. James. Um, and it's so gripping, so gripping. I mean, some some of it is, yeah, I mean, questionable. It's questionable mm. things happening. But she's so good on psychology the psychology of all these characters utterly convincing why they do what they do. So complex, the ties between children and their parents. And it's about an adopted girl who um, seeks out her biological mother, who who actually is a murderer, um, and how that all sort of figures out. And it's just absolutely brilliant. And I finished that yesterday. So yes, I'm fresh for all my enthusiasm about that one. Um, but I think I need to read something a bit lighter for my next one. And I'm very lucky because I get sent beautiful publishers' proofs in advance of books coming out. So I've got some lovely things. I'm having a look on my pile. There's some lovely things to look at next. Um, yeah, looking forward to that. Brilliant. Um, I guess this question ties into that one. What is the book that you'd like to be buried with? I found this question really hard to answer. It's a big and one. I, it's a really big one. And what I decided on in the end was the book that I read before I started writing The Lamplighters that really cemented my passion for this subject. And I would choose, in fact, I've got it here. So I'll just, if my earphones, I'm going to fall out, I'll just jump up and get it. <laughs> um, it's a book called Lighthouse by Tony Parker. Oh, wow. So it's not a novel. It is a series of um, interviews with the families of lighthouse keepers in the 50s. And it's not just about lighthouse keeping. It's about being a person. It's about being human. And that's why I would want to be buried with it, because it, the whole book is infused with this lovely warmth of human kindness and wisdom and connection with each other. And so it's a great deal more to me, this book, than a research text. It's got all the information about lighthouses in it, but it's about so much more than that. And I think everybody should read it for that reason. And that's why I can imagine myself <laughs> clutching it to my chest in the coffin. <laughs> I love it. I could see um, post-it notes sticking out. Are you a bookmark person as opposed to a corner folder? I'm afraid this is both. But I don't mind. Like Normally, if I'm reading a novel, <laughs> I will bookmark, especially yes. a hardback. Maybe the P.D. James got folded over a bit because it's a, an antique book. and it really mind. <laughs> um, but this one, because of, yes, yeah, so I'm highlighting, I've got... Yeah, so as this is a research text, I've made an exception and I've done it all, really. And I think there's a chocolate bar wrapper bookmark in here as well from when I first read it. So, yeah, it's a little historic Frankie's moment in time. That one. It's an ongoing battle, Sarah, and I have about the preservation of books and respecting sorry. them. No, no, you're OK. What you said makes complete sense. I understand that. And I think things like <laughs> research books and recipe books, they should get you know, a bit battered and beaten. It's like Sarah basically takes hers, dunks them in the bath and then folds all the pages. Like absolutely horror show. I love (laughs) a loved book and I love looking back on it and rereading it and there being, you know, like a a coffee stain or something and thinking about when I last read it. And I just like a well-worn book, but I mean, it really upsets Frankie. She doesn't even like to crack the spine. (laughs) Do you take your... um, hardback jackets off when you read your hardback so I never even knew people did this I I never until I had a hardback published I never even 
heard that that was a thing. That's like peeling get off the a baby's skin. <laughs> you're just, you're a monster, Sarah. I'm going to call the police. I mean, that yet another benefit to it. No, I just I love a well-loved book. That's all. Oh, true horror story. But speaking of death, so obviously to get in the coffin with your book, you've died, and unfortunately, it's because you were on death row. And I'm very sorry, whatever <laughs> oh, no. horrendous crime you've committed, clearly against that book. Um, so <laughs> what is your death row? What was your death row meal? Well, I'm going to return to the 1970s for this one, guys. I'm going to say a starter of parma ham and melon, because I love parma ham. I know it's 70s, but I love parma ham and melon. So good with melon, so refreshing. So refreshing. So I'd want to have, you've got to get the ratio right. Mm. I want lashings of parma ham with my melon and a nice Mm. crack of black pepper. Yes. Um, For my main course, I would have, it's got to be fillet steak with peppercorn sauce, skinny chips and oh, forget about the vegetables just lots of- <laughs> you're going to be killed so it doesn't really matter about five a day at this up. point <laughs> yeah, don't worry about the it steak needs to be very rare mm. yeah I mean not actually leaking blood but but I want I want to I want it to be the redder side of pink probably so really rare um and for pudding chocolate mousse just a nice dark chocolate mousse maybe with some raspberries on it Oh, and lots of red wine, like a bottle, a, a whole bottle for me. <laughs> I like that. That sounds incredible. What a great meal. Thanks. Yeah, I can that's... relax in my coffin with my favourite book. Nice and full. Yeah. yeah. What a dream. I also wanted to go back slightly to the crime genre. As you said, your The Lamplighters in particular is actually quite a bit of a, spans a few genres, I would say. You've got your love story, you've got your ghost story. There's a thriller element to it. Would you say that the crime kind of aspect is something that you tend to go to when you're reading or writing the most or are other genres starting to appeal to you more as a writer now? No, and actually I confess to being, I, I don't I, I don't really read a lot of crime. I mean, I know I've just had a PG James, but I tend to read quite widely across all genres. I love, I love ghost stories. Um, I love um, mysteries. I love women's fiction I love bonkbusters so I like a great great deal of things and and I wouldn't say that I I especially I suppose if I had to choose one genre I would say the mystery genre the sort of chilling slightly supernatural mystery would be what I'd be most drawn to and that's why the lamplighters is what it is I suppose but yeah I, I think I've always wanted to try writing something a little bit supernatural myself and for me the sea is the perfect foil for that the sea just has such mystery about it. I mean, I find it amazing that we know more about space and we do the deepest regions of the ocean um, and all the life down there in the dark. And I think it's magic, really. So I wanted to try and write about that. And yeah, I think, yeah, for me, mystery is just where it's at. So my, my next book is going to be another, based on another real life mystery as well, but nothing to do with the sea this time. We've coming up. to land yes um <laughs> the lake district actually oh beautiful yeah. which is yeah. um again one of my very favorite places and such atmosphere there so I, I love to sort of um play out these human dramas against these wonderful spectacular backdrops I think you always want a bit of escapism in a book and with crime or thriller books it's hard to get that escapism because it's not particularly comforting so you almost want that backdrop of somewhere really lovely that brings yeah. that comfort I suppose I think so yeah but I mean I I, I don't know because with the lamplighters I didn't really set out to 
I didn't know what the genre was I, and I, I purposefully didn't want to think about that too much because I'd written commercially in the past very much into a mold it was quite freeing with the lamplighters to not worry about that and just write the book that I wanted to write and see where it landed and it ended up landing as you say between several different things and S.J. Watson um, author of Before I Go to Sleep was one of the first people to give us a quote incredibly kindly a lovely quote about it being a mystery a love story and a ghost story all at once and that was actually really helpful for me to be told oh that is that's okay for it to be that it doesn't have to be one of those things it can be all of them and yeah it's funny how sometimes what other people say about your book helps you to make sense of it in many ways so yeah that was lovely yeah sometimes definitely definitely and yeah I've just been so amazed by by the nice things that people have said about it um I still can't quite believe it and then with the paperback coming out obviously those quotes were put onto the paperback jacket and I still pick it up I can't can't believe that it's really mine (laughs) do you have it all framed the quotes framed around your office and I don't actually I don't I don't have them framed um I've got what have I got I've got in my office the poster that Picador had up um which is like a in the bookshop windows like the the it's the sort of fictionalized the newspaper that's in the beginning of the lamplighters that reports the initial disappearance they've kind of reimagined that on a poster which is great I mean again it's all this creative innovation from somebody who's read your book and just you know imagined something connected with it all off their own bat which is kind of amazing but yeah I haven't got the quotes put up yet it feels we feel a little bit I don't know much <laughs> We um <laughs> our first author interview was with Chris Whitaker and um he's got all of his awards all lined up behind him. Oh, Chris wow. took great pleasure in pulling them out. Chris wow. has no shame. No, he has no shame at all. And um yeah, he likes to tell he likes to remind you how how good he is a lot. So. Brilliant. Because <laughs> I think like when you're writing a book, it's such a lonely process mm. that when you have the book out and you're able to talk about it, and if you're lucky enough to be have the book enjoyed by people and be rewarded for it then yeah get those trophies out why not I'll do a Chris Whitaker <laughs> <laughs> well Emma thank you so much for your time it's been so lovely talking to you it's been lovely talking to you too it's been such a lovely relaxed chat thank you very much <laughs> Well, now, now we're going into the hard section of the note. I'm joking. We're not going yeah, to. <laughs> Comfortable, are you? No. We're, that is a, thank you so much. And everyone listening has to go and pick up the lamplighters and read it to see all, you know, really understand everything we've been talking about. Um, as you said, out in paperback, which is incredible as well. Congratulations. Um, and the hardback is equally beautiful. So, yeah, everybody go pick it up. And if you want to follow Emma on social media, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at StonexEmma, and that's all I'm on, actually. I've been quite strict with myself about social media and not getting onto too many platforms. So, yes, Twitter at StonexEmma. Brilliant. Um, well, thanks for listening, everybody. And if you have any other authors that you'd like us to speak to, please do let us know, because we will hound them, just like we did with Emma, until they, <laughs> until they relent and let us talk to them. So please email us at redandburypodcast at gmail.com or on the social medias. We're on all of them because we have no shame and we have nothing better to do. So um, we're everywhere. Well, I say we, I am. Um, okay. <laughs> any excuse to shame Sarah? It's fine. <laughs> I do nothing. <laughs> Hey, you are you're the talent and that's why you're here. We need you. Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, well, <laughs> thanks so much, everyone. <laughs> thanks. See you all soon. Bye. Bye. Elsewhere on We Made This. 
we dig music. This is evidence enough that I was kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Particularly because your initial choice was from 1986. <laughs> <laughs> it was on a 1978 playlist. People yeah. that do year-based playlists I need to calm the fuck down and check their facts <laughs> i mean granted i am a person that's done a year-based playlist and i need to calm down and <laughs> check my fucking facts which is fine right yeah that's fair but like or you can just do what i do and like just say no it's a compilation album it's released in that year and i'm definitely going to do it I no i can't no. do that because he <laughs> yes no. chris rear has a time machine he released a compilation of his mid-80s tracks but you know, Earlier. the weird thing is, so yeah, we, we switched this one out quite late on in our preparation for the Last podcast, night. And, <laughs> and, and it made fuck all difference to any of our notes. A dream given form, a Babylon 5 podcast. On a science fiction heavy TV series, I'm not sure how much you can push the boundaries that way. So... I think it has to be in terms of storytelling, yeah. and character, and progressiveness, I think. And kind of looking back at Sensei, I think that's a good way of going forward. So what are your thoughts around the idea of the CW network being a network to pick up the Bubble Five reboot? I, I don't know whether it's the right one or not, in all honesty. Mm. And with the recent kind of announcement that CW is being sold, yeah, uh, which is why... Um, the pilot script's not been picked up. Frame to frame. The overarching narrative of Nolan's trilogy is so good. Nolan dedicated an entire movie to us understanding Bruce Wayne and why Bruce Wayne mm. wanted to become the embodiment of fear. That's what that groundwork is what then allows the Dark Knight to become the incredibly tortured, bleak, like almost nihilistic beast that it is, in, in which there's no such thing as a hero. There are no heroes. No, exactly. But as, as a question to you, are you are you suggesting then, if a film hypothetically was to exist without giving us the Batman Begin portion, but to exist in, I don't know, the second or third year of the Batman story, that is dark, bleak and nihilistic, if it was not to have the Batman Begins, do you think it wouldn't quite work as well as The Dark Knight? Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.